the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Chris Williams is engineering today's program. Later in the four o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Amy Lynn Nelson, author of It Matters, looking for the good things in life, especially if you've felt uh, that you've been a failure and can't imagine that God can somehow redeem your failures and use you in any way, let alone love you. Amy Lynn Nelson will be my guest later this hour. We're also going to try to wind our way through some of the uh, major news stories that broke earlier today. In fact, my head is still spinning through all of it. Some of the stories we'll be uh, talking about a bit later, anti-Trump FBI agent Peter Stroke uh, voluntarily testified before the House Judiciary Committee today behind closed doors. And the Trump-backed candidates scored major victories on Tuesday's primaries as frequent critic Mitt Romney won his GOP. GOP Senate primary runoff in Utah, and Governor Henry McMaster was projected to win the Republican gubernatorial runoff election in South Carolina. Top House Democrat Representative Joe Crowley, he was the number four man, was upset in New York's primary by a political newcomer and socialist, Alexandria Cortez. She's 28. She will be if she's successful. Of course, she has a runoff with the Republican. But in uh, New Jersey, it's very likely she will win. Uh, she will be the youngest member of, uh, of the House. A federal judge ordered U.S. Border Patrol authorities to stop separating families at the U.S.-Mexico border and to reunite already separated relatives within 30 days. Now, this is not just a matter of will, but uh, to be able to pull that off is going to be something of a challenge. Well, Peter Stroke, the FBI agent who was removed from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation after sending several anti-Trump text messages during the 2016 presidential election, voluntarily appeared before the House Judiciary Committee today. Reports emerged over the weekend that he was willing to testify before Congress without an immunity deal and that he wouldn't invoke his Fifth Amendment protections against self-incrimination. Well, despite his purported willingness, the agent was subpoenaed on Sunday to appear on Capitol Hill today at 10 a.m. Eastern Time because he wouldn't agree to a specific date. However, the subpoena was uh, no longer valid because Stroke voluntarily agreed to appear for a closed-door interview. Sources on the Hill said that the force of a subpoena was not necessary, that the committee planned to uh, bring Stroke back in the near future for public testimony, something the president said was necessary. And as I mentioned, Mitt Romney was projected to win in his primary runoff in Utah uh, to replace retiring U.S. Senator Orrin Hatch, part of a string of victories Tuesday for Trump-backed candidates. And all seven states uh, held primaries or runoffs across the country with the Utah contest among the highest profile. As his victories piled up, the president and weighed in on Twitter, of course, calling Tuesday a big night. Romney was lambasted, uh, who rather lambasted the president, uh, then candidate, as a fraud and a con man in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, has softened his tone substantially since then. Trump endorsed Romney in the Utah race back in February. Voters also headed to the polls in New York, in Maryland, Colorado, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and South Carolina. Buoyed by a risky, full-throated endorsement by President Trump, South Carolina Governor 
Governor Henry McMaster was projected to win the Republican gubernatorial runoff election. In New York, another Trump-backed candidate, Representative Dan Donovan, prevailed over the comeback candidacy of Michael Grimm, who'd been convicted of tax fraud, once threatened to throw a reporter off a balcony, and was considered a liability for Republicans. And the shocker in the House... For the Dems, uh, U.S. Representative Joe Crowley, a fervent Trump foe and chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, who was uh, thought to be uh, by some rather to be a future speaker of the House, suffered a shocking primary defeat in New York's 14th um, House district to a socialist political novice, um, Alexandria Cortez, a 28-year-old Bernie Sanders supporter who was uh, called for the abolition of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. She'd gained the endorsement of several left-wing groups, including Move On and the Democratic Socialists of America. In a statement, Crowley congratulated uh, uh, Cortez on her victory and said he looked forward to supporting her against Republican Anthony Pappas in November. The National Republican Campaign Committee celebrated the defeat of poor Joe Crowley, as they put it. House Democrats hoping for a post-Pelosi era are now left leaderless, according to the NRCC spokesman Matt Gorman, saying the only person happier tonight than Nancy Pelosi is the National Republican Congressional Committee. Uh, In fact, Crowley was thought to be the person most likely to succeed Nancy Pelosi. And a federal judge in California uh, yesterday ordered the U.S. Border Patrol to stop separating families at the U.S.-Mexico border and to reunite families already separated within 30 days. Any children younger than five must be reunited within 14 days of Tuesday's ruling. U.S. District Judge Dana Sabra of San Diego ruled. Sabra is an appointee of George W. Bush, also required the government to provide phone contact between parents and their children within 10 days. With an international outcry, the president last week issued an executive order to stop the separation of families and said parents and children will instead be detained together. Now, the law does not permit that, but this executive order will permit it. And on this day in 1991, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, the first black jurist to sit on the high court, announced his retirement. His departure would lead to the controversial nomination of Clarence Thomas, the second only uh, sitting justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1985, on this day, the legendary Route 66, which originally stretched from Chicago to Santa Monica, California, passed into history as officials uh, decertified the road. And in 1922, the first Newbery Medal, which recognizes excellence in children's literature, is awarded. The Story of Mankind by Hendrik Willem von Loon was the winner that year. Well, as I mentioned earlier, there was a lot going on today. The Supreme Court dealt a a blow to unions. Justice Kennedy announced that he intends to retire at the end of next month. Uh, There was a Democratic candidate revolt against Pelosi in House races all across the country and much, much more. We're going to try to cover as much of that as we can. Also, I should mention that the uh, GOP compromise Immigration bill was defeated on the House floor, not altogether surprising. Peter Stroke, he grilled, was rather grilled for hours on Capitol Hill over any involvement in the start of the Russia probe. Trump's uh, travel ban, uh, which only covers about... uh, uh, which accounts for only 8% of the world's Muslims, uh, was upheld in the court. Uh, and Republicans, it has been discovered by some fluke, has Im- have imposed new taxes on churches in their proposed uh, legislation. We'll explain all of that throughout the uh, throughout the day. Also coming up uh, later this hour, we'll talk with Amy Lynn Nelson. The title of the book, It Matters, Looking for the Good Things in Life. If you've ever felt utterly defeated and questioned whether or not given your history of um, 
misdeeds God could ever love or use you, you're going to want to listen into this conversation. Amy Lynn Nelson, author of It Matters, Looking for the Good Things in Life. When we come back, we'll talk about the Supreme Court that dealt a rather severe blow to unions ruling against forced fees for government workers. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a major legal and political defeat for big labor, the Supreme Court ruled 5 to 4 on Wednesday that state government workers cannot be forced to pay so-called fair share fees to support collective bargaining and other union activities with which they disagree. The conservative majority said a union's contract negotiations over pay and benefits were inextricably linked with its uh, broader political activities and concluded workers had a limited constitutional right not to underwrite such speech. The case uh, specifically examined union fees paid by non-members. Well, this uh, procedure violates the First Amendment and cannot continue, Associate Justice Samuel Alito wrote in the majority opinion. Neither an agency fee nor any other payment to the union may be deducted from a non-member's wages, nor may any other attempt be made to collect such a payment unless the employee affirmatively consents to pay. Well, after announcing the last of two remaining decisions, the court recessed for the summer without any justice announcing a Retirement from the bench. There'd been uh, muted speculation that senior associate Justice Anthony Kennedy would be prepared to step down after three decades of the high bench. Uh, but no announcement arrived. Well, not until later in the day, a letter sent directly to the president. While the current case applies only to public sector employees, meanwhile, the political and financial stakes are potentially huge for the broader American labor union movement, which had been sounding the alarm about the legal fight. Well, the unions say 5 million government employees in 24 states in the District of Columbia would be affected by this ruling. The majority overturned by the uh, court's four-decade-old precedent, known as the Abood decision, dealing with so-called agency fees, allowing states to require public employees to pay money supporting collective bargaining and other union activities. There are very strong reasons in this case, fundamental free speech rights in this case, uh, said the uh, uh, Justice Alito. The key plaintiff was Mark Janice, an Illinois state employee who pays $550 annually to the powerful public sector union known as Ask Me. Uh, while not a member of the union, he is required under state law to hand over a weekly portion of his paycheck, which he says is a violation of his constitutional rights. I work for health and family services, and I'm forced to pay money to a union that then supports political causes that I do not agree with, Janice uh, said in an interview. President Trump cheered the court decision on Twitter, writing Supreme Court rules in favor of non-union workers who are now, as an example, able to support a candidate of his or her choice without having those who control the union deciding for them. Big loss for the the coffers of the Democrats, end quote. Well, the Justice Department has been uh, clear on its position, announcing in December it was reversing course from the previous administration and supporting Janice. Writing the dissent for the court's four liberal members, Associate Justice Elena Kagan, said the majority succeeded in its crusade by turning the First Amendment into a sword. Judicial disruption does not get any greater than what the court does today, she said, in a rare oral dissent read from the bench. The majority has overruled Abood for no exceptional or special reason, but because it never liked the decision. It has overruled Abood because it wanted to, because that is, it uh, it wanted to pick the winning side in what should be, and until now has been, an energetic policy debate. 
Well, the justices split 4-4 on the issue in a similar case two years ago, just after Antonin Scalia, Scalia died, rather. But with Neil Gorsuch now filling the vacancy left by Scalia, he was seen as the deciding vote this time around, uh, which proved to be uh, the case. He did decide the, uh, the vote. Well, speaking of Justice Kennedy and uh, declining to resign from the bench, Associate Supreme Court Justice Kennedy has, in fact, announced that he intends to retire from the Supreme Court of the United States, effective July 31st. He announced today that he will retire from the bench, providing President Trump the opportunity to ensure a conservative majority on the court. Uh, And I think it's important to point out that he chose to do so uh, under this administration, uh, keeping in mind that he was a Reagan appointee. Kennedy's retirement effective July 31st, will set up a high-stakes political battle over his replacement's nomination. Kennedy is 81. He established himself as a sought-after a swing vote for the court's liberal justices, casting the divide, deciding vote, rather, on issues ranging from abortion and affirmative action to capital punishment and gay rights. He announced his retirement in a letter to the president, saying, for a member of the legal profession, it is the highest of honors to serve on this court. He wrote, please permit me by this letter to express my profound gratitude for having had the privilege to seek in each case how best to know, interpret, and defend the Constitution and the laws that must always conform to its mandate." Dates and promises. Well, the contest over his successor's uh, nomination will likely be made more tense by the sentiment widely held among liberals that Trump's first nominee, Justice Gorsuch, occupies a seat, a seat rather stolen from Barack Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. Senate Republicans managed to obstruct Garland's nomination to succeed Justice Antonin Scalia, rather keeping the seat vacant for some 14 months. Holding a 51-seat majority in the Senate, Republicans ostensibly had the votes to withstand Democrat opposition due to a rule change advanced last April by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, which lowered the confirmation threshold for Supreme Court justices from 60 votes to a simple majority. Regardless, the nomination is sure to drive millions in ad spending from liberal special interests that will likely target moderate Republicans such as Senators Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska to oppose the nomination of a conservative stalwart. Following Kennedy's announcement, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the upper chamber will vote on a replacement this fall. Now, also in the uh, the mix is the call from Minority Speaker, or, or rather Senator uh, Schumer, who said that uh, the vote should be postponed until after the midterm elections, uh, citing the uh, Biden rule and saying that forcing a vote on Kennedy's replacement before the midterms would be the absolute height of hypocrisy, uh, making the presidential election equivalent to the midterm election. And as uh, mentioned, there doesn't seem to be any will on the part of Republicans uh, to postpone that uh, that vote until the midterm elections have concluded. Well, there were um, a number of races that took place yesterday. Anyone looking for signs that Nancy Pelosi has lost clout within the Democratic ranks this cycle need only catch a glimpse of last week's candidates forum in uh, New Hampshire's first congressional district. When 10 Democratic candidates were asked if they'd support the House Minority Leader for Speaker if elected and Democrats regain the chamber's majority, only one raised his hand. Their hesitation speaks to a growing uneasiness among this year's midterm candidates, especially in swing districts with the veteran um, California Democrats grip on power. Well, the New Hampshire in New Hampshire, rather, the candidates uh, response on the Pelosi question was telling, given the nature of the electorate, the seat in play currently held by retiring Democratic Representative Carol Shea Porter represents a swing district in a swing state. 
Well, perceived Pelosi uh, ties uh, could hurt the Democrats' bid to hold the seat in the fall. In Pennsylvania, Democrat Connor Lamb surely made similar calculations earlier this year when he vowed not to support Pelosi for speaker and went on to win a special election in the deep red district that President Trump carried in 2016 by 20 percentage points. Among them are... um, or rather, since um, since then, some 20 Democratic congressional challengers in districts controlled by Republicans have publicly distanced themselves from Pelosi. Among them is, is uh, Clark Tucker, the Democratic nominee in Arkansas's um, second district, who declared on a TV commercial that I, from day one, said that I will not vote for Nancy Pelosi. Dan McCready, the Democratic nominee in North Carolina's ninth district, said earlier this spring it's time for a change, and that starts at the top. Uh, Dan Cole, the Democratic challenger in Wisconsin's 6th district, told Fox 6 in April that if I'm elected to Congress, I would not vote for Nancy Pelosi as leader of the Democrats. Whether the rank and file rejection might actually imperil Pelosi's bid for the gavel if Democrats take the House, it remains to be seen. But the statements reflect a growing midterm strategy of Democratic candidates distancing themselves from the longtime liberal leader. This is President Trump and fellow Republicans try to cast her along with um, far left colleagues, rather, like Californian Maxine Waters, who stirred controversy over the weekend with her call to harass Trump cabinet officials as the 2018 face of the party. Pelosi is 78. She's led the House Democrats for 15 years. And after her party won back control of the chamber in 2006, she made history as the first female speaker. The San Francisco politician lost her speakership after the 2010 elections when the GOP took back the House. Two years ago, she was challenged for House Democratic leader, or rather by House Democratic leader, Representative Tim Ryan of Ohio, one of a number of younger lawmakers pushing for fresh leadership. Pelosi defeated Ryan by a more uh, more than a two to one margin. In early May, she put to rest any doubts that she would run for speaker again if the Democrats flip the 24 GOP House seats needed to retake the majority, telling the Boston Globe, we will win. I will run for speaker. I feel confident about it. And my members do, too. Well, we will see when the uh, new crop of uh, members make their way into the house. Up next, we're going to talk with Amy Lynn Nelson. Her book is titled It Matters, Looking for the Good in Things, Even If You Don't See It in Yourself. Amy Lynn Nelson, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that no one lives long enough without experiencing some regret For choices that they've made, every choice we make matters. A broken marriage, school dropout, early pregnancy, abortion. They can turn one's neat plans into guilt, shame, and bitterness. The question is, how do we recover from hurtful experiences and learn to move on? Well, she experienced all of these and more. In her new book, It Matters, Looking for the Good Things in Life, she explains that her own failures could have easily destroyed her. The wall of self-protection that she'd hidden behind for so long had cracked. She felt like God could never love someone like her. Well, she became bitter and withdrawn. She lived with shame and guilt after she had an abortion at age 18, but she turned her bitter experience into helping other unwed mothers. We'll hear more about her story in a few moments. She says, I made a lot of bad choices that led to some really bad consequences. The way out was to reorient her life, her thinking, and to begin serving others, giving herself away for good instead of bad. She realized how important uh, her daily choices were 
and that they matter. And the book uh, reminds us all that that's true for us as well. Well, Amy Lynn, who has served rather as a crisis pregnancy center counselor and director, she has ministered hope and healing to women for 20 years who have experienced abortion and those who have been sexually abused. She's also served as an abstinence educator in public and private schools, sharing safe messages, sex and family education. Her passion is to help refresh people spiritually, and she desires to impart hope and healing to people who are frustrated with life. She joins us today. Today, once again, to talk about her latest book, It Matters, because, well, it does, Looking for the Good Things in Life. Amy Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. I am thrilled to be on your show, Georgine. Thank you. Well, this is such a personal book, but I think because you were vulnerable, it helps the rest of us to admit some of the challenges that we are uh, are going through. Um, we live in a time where negativity and criticism seem to permeate everything. Um, and we oftentimes turn that same negativity and uh, criticism toward ourselves. How can we learn to view life in a, a more positive way, given what we know to be true about ourselves? Well, you know, we, I think uh, a lot of the times that we have the tendency to, like you said, view ourselves in a negative way. And we have to get to the point to see ourselves the way God sees us. God sees us as, you know, um, individuals. He sees us as unique. He sees us as fearfully and wonderfully made. And when I, and what I've done is, you know, I, I, you were talking about all the things that I've gone through in my life. And, you know, my life has been hard. And what I've done is I chronicled my journey of healing, and I included it in this book, in the Bible study part of the book. And in the book, It Matters, Looking for the Good Things in Life, it's kind of like a hybrid book. It's got a Bible study, prayer time. It's got life stories in it, stories of faith, stories of mission trips, stories of just, you know, watching God work. And and I wanted to include those stories because what I, what I do is I, I look for the good things. When you have such a bad life, you have to look for the good things. And, and I'm not saying my whole entire life has been horrible. I mean, there's been some pretty horrible events in my life, but... Through those horrible events, that, unfortunately, that's what shaped me and made me, um, you know, feel all the bitterness and the, you know, the guilt and the shame from, especially from having had an abortion and, you know, not to mention the other things that I'd gone through with, you know, divorce and I could, the list goes on. But, um, and, and even, I even have stories in here about my ex-husband and they're positive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But um, but God, God has opened the door for me to, um, you know, minister to people for years and years and years and um, and share my life experiences with them to help them overcome their own hurtful experiences. Yeah. And and I wanted to I wanted to minister to a multitude of people. And that's why I wrote this book, because I want people to be able to take this book, and, and you know, it's not something you have to do all at one time. Uh, a lot of people use it in their um, small group Bible studies or, you know, just an individual Bible study. And they use this book to help them, um, you know, learn how to forgive, help them to learn how to pray for people that they don't like. And, you know, that's one of the hardest things to do. And that's one of the hardest things that I had to do in my own personal life is to pray for people that I didn't like. And I still do that today. And, and you know, when you start praying for people that hurt you, who have abused you, who, 
who, I mean, that is the most foreign concept in the world to pray for somebody like that. But you know, that's what God's word says to do. God's word says that we should pray over these people who curse you and despitefully use you and everything. And so what I do is I pray spiritual blessings over people who've hurt me. And when I do that, that gets God activated and he takes care of things. Like if I were to take care of someone who had hurt me, it probably wouldn't be in a very nice way. But when you pray spiritual blessings on someone, God takes that and his vengeance on that person is redemptive, whereas ours would yeah. not be redemptive. Yeah. Now, how did you learn to take your painful experience and see things uh, from a different perspective? Because I think you, as you talked about forgiveness, uh, we certainly are mm-hmm. told in scripture that that's what we are obligated to do. Forgiving the mistakes that we ourselves have made can sometimes be even more challenging. How did you do it? Oh, it is. It is. Uh, I, I actually um, started out going through an abortion recovery group. And, and I would like to you know, say if anybody listening to me today has experienced abortion, I would like for you to you know, call a local crisis pregnancy center or something like that and, and get involved in an abortion recovery group. And it, you know, it's not something that you want to do, and it's not something that's going to be fun. It's something that, you know, what you have to do is you have to be real with yourself. And you have to face the hurts of your past. And, you know, I had an abortion when I was 18, and I didn't deal with the, the, the consequences of having an abortion or going through the abortion recovery group until I was 30. And who would have thought that being 30 years old, the, 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 the negative emotions, all the junk and everything that I was going through at that time was directly related to an abortion I had 12 years in my past. You know, you just don't look at things like that. It's like mm-hmm. you're, you're constantly looking at the immediate things like what is currently bothering me that's making me feel like this. But once I uh, went through the abortion recovery group and went and, and experienced that recovery and and the people who were leading the group, they came alongside me and they loved me and they helped me to forgive myself. And, you know, um, we we had a memorial service to give honor, dignity, and respect to the children who had been lost through abortion. And the week before they uh, the memorial service, they handed us a, a doll. Um, I had one abortion, and they handed me a little doll wrapped in pink ribbons because I had you know prayed and asked God about it, and it was a little girl. And so they um, when they handed me the doll, I just started crying. And, you know, I I realized that not only did I care that my child was dead, but somebody else did too. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, take this, take this little doll home. Um, We know it'll never replace your child, but we want you to take this doll home, wrap it up in a blanket, rock it, whatever you want to do, but you need to bring it back to the memorial service the next week. And so I took that doll home and that week I cried more tears than I think I've ever cried in my life. And I I confessed my sadness and my sorrow in having ended her life to her. And I feel like, you know, that reached her in heaven. And and through that, I forgave myself. I was finally able to forgive myself. Now, I, I had asked God to forgive me like a million times. But through that week of of healing, you know, I just, I finally forgave myself. And that's the biggest thing. We have the hardest time forgiving ourselves because um, the devil wants to, you know, heap so much 
guilt and condemnation on us. And, you know, the day I had the abortion, that was the day that I opened up the door to allow the devil a foothold in my life. And from that day forward, you know, he tor- he tormented me with the thoughts of having killed my child on almost a daily basis. Mm. And, th- and then when we had the memorial service, and I, I went and placed my little ribbon handkerchief doll in, in an actual baby casket, along with, you know, all the, the other people that were with me, they closed the lid on that casket and... You know, it, it, they said, this is an event that is behind you. You know that your child is in heaven and, you know, God's got this. Yeah. And I changed the name from that day forward. I, you know, no more, no more torment. It's like I woke up the next day and I just had peace in my heart. And I've carried that peace with me all these years. And, you know, and that's why it was so important to me to write this book and put this Bible study, this journey of healing in this book, because, you know, not only is it a journey of healing, it's, um, it's an avenue to open up the doors to trust God more. And, you know, it's not a book about abortion and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, the stories are actually funny stories. And, um, I I had a really great time writing it and I, I, um, I went up to my, a friend's cabin up in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I sat up there for days and days and days and just barely laughed writing these stories. But I, I love writing the stories, and I love, I, I've had a lot of people tell me, um, Amy, I loved reading this book because it helped me to look into my own life and see the things that matter and that are important in my life. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, we're going we're gonna to uh, continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. So, Amy Lynn, hang on. We'll be right back. Again, we're talking about the book, It Matters, Looking for the Good Things in Life. Amy Lynn is our guest, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing our conversation with Amy Lynn. Her book is titled It Matters, Looking for the Good Things in Life. Now, in the book, It Matters, uh, you point out that we tend to build walls to protect ourselves. Uh, and you also write about rebuilding your inner city. Let's talk about walls when uh, building and, and rebuilding and tearing down are good, um, good ways to uh, live out the, the notion that it matters. Okay. When we, when we go through hurt in our lives, we have a tendency to build layers of impenetrable steel around us as a form of protecting ourselves from getting hurt again. And what we have to do is, um, after years of you know the self-protection and everything, we have to, to tear down those walls. We have to allow God to tear down those walls and build His walls of protection around us. Because, you know, when we build our own walls, you know, we don't let people in. We don't let. We don't have close, intimate, you know, friendships, relationships, anything, because we're so busy keeping people at a distance. And I know I was a pro at doing that, and I would not let anybody into my life. I had no close friends, and of course, you know, I had my family, but I had no close friends, and I wouldn't let anybody know the real me because I was so ashamed of who I was. And um, when I finally allowed God to, you know, start just tearing down those those layers of steel around me, and he started building his walls around me, that's when I started developing good friendships 
and relationships and 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 just trusting God. And you know, it's not really so much about trusting people. And I, I think a lot of people, including myself, have that or had it wrong. And I think you know we have the opportunity to make it right, but. We have a tendency to trust people. Like when people come into our lives, it's like, oh, I, I trust that person. And, you know, eventually, you know, a lot of times they'll end up hurting you. And the one that we don't trust is God. And he is the one who never forsakes us. He never walks away. He's always waiting for us to, you know, come around. And he's the one that we need to trust. And that's what the Bible study in this book, It Matters. Yeah. Um, helps. You, you touched on this. Um, Go ahead. I, well, I'm real excited about that part. <laughs> yeah. You touched on this earlier, but um, there was a point at which you couldn't imagine that God could love you given um, your history. And I'm, I'm sure that could apply to any of us. We just fill in our own blanks. But how did you get from, how did you come from, how could God love anyone like me to recognizing and believing what God's word says? Uh, by people coming into my life and loving me. Um, when I went through a, a walk to Emmaus, I don't know if you know what that is or not, but I went through a walk to Emmaus about five years after I was saved. I was saved at the age of 25 and went through that. And that was when um, I, there were people just kind of loving on me all weekend and showing God's love. And that was when I actually started caring about myself again. And through, you know, um, different things like people coming around me to help me with, you know, going to the abortion recovery group and, and several other things. That's when I started developing friendships. That's when I started developing relationships with other people. And I, I really started caring about myself again, because I saw that I wasn't such a horrible person that I wasn't the only one hurting because I think a lot of people, I know I did. I, I felt like I was the only one who felt the way I did. But come to find out, getting involved in a group of, you know, people who have experienced similar things, I realized that a lot of, you know, most of the women had similar experiences, similar feelings and of shame and guilt. And, and you know, it's just coming together and loving on each other. Yeah. That's what it is. Now let's talk about how the book, um, It Matters, is structured, because it really is uh, intended to be a Bible study, but to be very practical for those um, who are struggling. Each of the chapters begins with the, the phrase, it matters, and then you go uh, go on to, it matters that you walk in forgiveness. Uh, it matters mm-hmm. that um, you spread the gospel and so on. Talk a little bit about how you see the book being used by those who are struggling to look for the good things in life. Um, I see... Each 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 chapter begins with three or four short stories, and then it moves into positive word confessions from the Bible. Then it moves into the Bible study, and it and it finishes with the prayer time. And the the Bible study and the prayer time, the positive word confessions, are all tied into the stories. And as the reader goes into each chapter, it's just it, it's it's a it's it's like a forward momentum kind of thing that you want to continue to do, and you want to continue to um, you know dive into God's word. And and when you when you read the stories, the stories are focused on uh, well, of course they're focused on my life, but 
it's it's my life with interaction with other people. It's how other people have ministered to me. It's how I've had, well, except for the, the black bear story when I almost got eaten by a bear. But that, <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> like I said, some of the stories are funny. And there was a story where I fell out of the kayak and my daughter got a really good laugh at me floating in the lake <laughs> in February. But um but yeah, the, the, I think that uh, a lot of people will benefit from this, and I think that um, you know it'll help people to um, overcome hurts in their lives, and it'll help people to walk in love, and 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 really, what's more important than anything is to trust God, because you know a lot of right now in our society we have a tendency to focus on the negative things in life. And we have a tendency to think, well, if I don't have enough, if if my house isn't big enough or if I don't have, you know, the perfect car or boats or, you know, just things that my life isn't worth living. But, you know, it's not about that. It's about the relationships that you have in your life. And it's about loving others well and being a blessing to other people and showing God's love to other people. As we close our conversation, let me ask you what you would say to someone who feels their mistakes and their choices in life are too much for God to use them in effective ministry. I am here to tell you that I am the chief of sinners. I am. And if God can use me, he can use anybody. And I would like to encourage you today to to not allow the devil to have that stronghold in your life and to move forward and receive the healing and the freedom that God wants you to have and don't live in that bondage another day in the name of Jesus. Mm. (laughs) Again, the title of the book, It Matters, Looking for the Good Things in Life. Amy Lynn is the author and the book is published by Morgan James. Uh, Where can our listeners find a copy of It Matters? Anywhere, um, any online bookstore, Walmart, Target, Barnes & Noble, Books, Books Million, ChristianBooks.com. Um, unfortunately, Lifeway is not carrying it right now, so we're going to have to talk with them. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but really, anywhere, any, any online store. All right. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on your show. I really enjoyed being a part of it, Jane. Thank you. Bye-bye. Amy Lynn is the author. The book, title of the book, It Matters, Looking for the Good Things. In life, and I have to tell you something that I find some humor in. At the end of the interview, you know, we've we've engaged in conversation. I've said the author's name several times, but my name really doesn't come up and, until we go to break or come back and I announce it's the Georgine Rice Show. But by the time you've uh, spoken for ten minutes from the time that you know the announcement comes, it's the Georgine Rice Show. It's always a little bit humorous to me to hear the person uh, that you're interviewing stumble over your name. Thank you, Georgine. <laughs> I don't know. I take humor where I can find it. Thank you for the interview. Thank Georgine. Anyway, Georgine Rice Show. I'll take that up with my mother who named me. 59 minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll resume making our way through some of the top news stories of the day. And oh, hasn't this been a, a, a whirlwind of activity? News and traffic up next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. 
<laughs> Georgine is the name, Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned earlier, there was a lot going on today, and we've tried to get through some of it in the first hour. We'll try to catch up in the second hour and cover some of uh, the rest of what happened. The GOP's compromise immigration bill was defeated on the House floor earlier today. No big surprise, although um, there was uh, at least hope for more optimism uh, than the uh, the attempt last week to do the same with a more conservative bill. Well, this was a sprawling compromise GOP immigration bill. It would have provided a path to citizenship for young illegal immigrants while directing $25 billion for the construction of the president's border wall. It failed in the House today, despite encouragement from the president for Republicans to support it. Now, the president, uh, when the first version failed, said, you're wasting your time. Wait till after the midterm elections. Then they said, well, we're going to postpone this second version of the bill. We're going to vote on it next week in hopes that they could generate enough interest and support to pass it. That failed. The bill was overwhelmingly rejected, 301 to 121, overwhelmingly rejected, in part because some Republicans are reluctant to vote for any bill they worry could be portrayed as amnesty. More than 100 Republicans voted against that legislation. Well, earlier in the day, the president called for Republicans to pass the uh, strong but fair immigration bill, saying that passage will show that we want strong borders and security while the Dems want Open borders. Well, after months of trying to bridge the chasm between uh, moderates and conservatives and two postponed votes, the House Speaker Paul Ryan labeled the legislation a great consensus bill and tried putting the best face on it on the likely outcome. Uh, what we have here is the seeds of consensus that will be gotten to. I'm quoting here, hopefully now, but if not later, he told reporters yesterday. But on Friday, Trump initially uh, suggested he was giving up trying to uh, get the bill approved uh, before the election, saying uh, red wave is needed to pass an immigration bill in Congress. Republicans should stop wasting their time. A Wednesday's vote capped months of uh, futile GOP efforts to pass wide ranging legislation on an issue that could color scores of congressional races in this fall's contest for House uh, and uh, perhaps Senate control. The Senate rejected three proposals in February, including one reflecting Trump's hardline policies and two bipartisan plans. The Republican compromise voted on today would have provided a shot at uh, citizenship for hundreds of thousands of immigrants uh, brought legally, rather illegally, to the United States as children. It would provide, as I mentioned, $25 billion for the president's uh, border wall that he uh, coveted uh, with Mexico. Uh, And that uh, failed to pass. What happens next most likely will um, occur after the midterm elections. Well, the New York Times published a shocking firsthand account of the horrific conditions a mother and her young son faced after immigrating to the United States from El Salvador. Unfortunately for the mainstream media, that continues to portray President Trump as the face of immigration crisis. The asylum seeker's tragic account happened in 2014. The story is much longer than we have been led to believe. The author of the op-ed wrote uh, on the condition of anonymity because of gang-related threats her family has faced. She explained that she wanted to flee the violence of her native El Salvador, uh, so she came to the United States seeking a new life during President Barack Obama's second term in the White House. Instead, I found myself locked in a family immigration detention center. It's an experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone, she wrote. The mainstream media has uh, painted Trump as the face of the immigration crisis, but it predates his administration. The Trump piece um, illustrates that it's an ongoing issue that's been a serious uh, problem since the current president was 
uh, simply a real estate mogul. However, the woman who sought asylum in 2014 never mentioned the president in her chilling account, the president at that time. Trump was mentioned by the second paragraph when the mother noted that she doesn't believe family detention is the answer to the outcry regarding children separated from their families. Well, the anonymous woman found no relief in the United States where she was held for two months in a for-profit immigration detention center in New Mexico back in 2014. The day-to-day conditions were horrible, she writes. The food was often expired, the milk was spoiled, and we weren't provided with snacks for our children between meals, she wrote. She explained that sometimes food was thrown out because of concerns regarding rats in her dorm and said children often went to bed hungry, while clean water also was hard to come by. It was no place for human beings, let alone for families with small children, she wrote. Well, again, this was uh, featured in the New York Times, illustrating that the challenges with immigration uh, have been going on for quite some time. Meanwhile, David and Sarah writes that the Trump administration is struggling to figure out how to enforce U.S. laws and keep families together. The matter is made more complex and difficult because of loopholes and restrictions in current law. But it doesn't have to be difficult and confusing. Congress can and should ensure that families are kept together and U.S. laws were well enforced. How so? Well, here's a checklist for Congress. David and Sarah proposes. Step one, close the Flores loophole. In 1997, the Clinton administration entered into the Flores Settlement Agreement, which allowed the government to hold unaccompanied children in detention for only 20 days, after which they had to be released into the least restrictive environment possible. In 2016, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decided this settlement was also applied to accompanied children. So this is what the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decided. When a family crosses the border illegally today, the U.S. government has to release the child from detention after 20 days, even if the parents are still being detained. After being caught sneaking across the border, some parents claim asylum to avoid being deported, and these asylum claims can take months to assess. So the choice for the government is to detain the parents until their case is completed, but release the child after 20 days, or to release uh, the entire family, knowing many will never show up at the immigration court hearing. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. Sometimes there's a language barrier. Sometimes they don't really receive the uh, court order that tells them when and where. I mean, it's not all willful defiance of the law, even though crossing the border is. Um, So there are a number of reasons why individuals and families may not show up at their court hearings. But uh, and Sarah points out that a simple fix here is for Congress to allow families to be detained together by overriding the Flores settlement. Courts should provide money for appropriate detention facilities. Step two, fix the asylum process. Violence in Central America and lax enforcement by the previous administration encouraged individuals to come to the U.S., and as a result, the number of asylum uh, claims has increased dramatically. Credible fear interviews, um, a Department of Homeland Security interviews of asylum seekers before they get to the immigration judge that were referred to an immigration judge increased by uh, from rather 5,100 in 2008 to almost 92,000 in 2016. Not only are claims increasing, but fewer claims are found to have met the definition of asylum. 28,000 grants of asylum were made in 2012, but only 20,455 were granted in 2016. There are several fixes to that. First, the U.S. should demand that asylum seekers first seek asylum at our consulates in in, uh, Mexico. Since they're not in the United 
United States. No one is detained, and it's uh, also easier for legitimate asylum seekers to make it there. Those who illegally cross into the U.S. and then claim asylum should have to explain why they didn't seek asylum from other governments, such as Mexico, and why they didn't apply for asylum at a U.S. consulate. The U.S. also should pursue safe third country agreements with countries such as Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama, so asylum seekers do not bypass these countries on their way to the United States. Another fix uh, is a crucial loophole. The well-meaning 2008 William Wilberforce Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act that's certainly a mouthful, contains a provision that requires unaccompanied children from countries other than Mexico to be released and put into the standard immigration court system. Congress should close this loophole so unaccompanied children from any country can be quickly returned to their family in their home country. Support uh, another step, support immigration courts and adjudication. Partly because of the broken process and uh, loopholes discussed above, U.S. immigration courts have been overwhelmed. The average wait time for court appearances has increased from 438 days in 2008 to 721 days now. DHS asylum officers don't have the time to get through pending claims, and the rest of the immigration court system is stretched to the breaking point. Congress should appropriate funds for more immigration court judges, prosecutors, and support staff, as well as DHS asylum officers. The system needs all of these positions staffed appropriately if it's going to function effectively. And some of what we're witnessing is simply... The fact that there are not adequate resources to fund the individuals and the infrastructure to handle the uh, ever-increasing numbers that are coming to the country. We're going to continue taking our look at some of the big news stories uh, that developed over the past, uh, well, 12 hours. Among them, Peter Stroke. He was grilled for hours on Capitol Hill today over any involvement in the start of the Russia probe. That and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, disgraced FBI official Peter Stroke, he testified for hours behind closed doors on Capitol Hill today following the revelations of numerous anti-Trump messages he exchanged with a, a bureau colleague and um, girlfriend during the 2016 presidential campaign. The question is whether or not this was just something going on between the two of them and one other who's been identified or if this actually had an impact on that investigation. The messages between uh, Stroke and former FBI attorney Lisa Page included one uh, revealed in the new Justice Department Inspector General's report in which Stroke vowed to stop Donald Trump from becoming president. Stroke was questioned for hours before the House Judiciary Committee today. Members of the committee sat in for confidential briefing, um, uh, firing off questions about the start of the Russia investigation and questions on the Clinton email investigation. There's still a lot of unanswered questions on who knew what when. House Freedom Caucus Chairman Mark Meadows Uh, out of North Carolina, told reporters on the Hill during a break from the hearing. And as it related to this particular investigation, what was the genius or rather the genesis, maybe both, of the Russia collusion investigation? Well, Meadows said that new information has come out but did not share specifics. While it's unclear what specifically was learned in the confidential hearing, a congressional source uh, says that most GOP members have focused on the Russia investigation and how Stroke uh, relates to the beginning of that probe. Stroke uh, appeared before the committee voluntarily, despite being issued a subpoena on Sunday. He said over the weekend that he was willing to testify before Congress without an immunity deal and that he would not invoke his Fifth Amendment protection against self-incrimination. But because he could not agree to a specific date, the committee issued him a subpoena to appear at Capitol Hill today. 
It was learned on Tuesday that the subpoena was no longer valid because Stroke voluntarily agreed to appear for the interview. Well, sources on the Hill said that um, the force of a subpoena was not, uh, well, that's not what I wanted to say. Stroke, who was uh, escorted from his FBI office last week, has been under scrutiny for months over a series of politically charged text messages exchanged with Page, who left the bureau in May. Stroke, who was assigned to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of Russia election meddling, was removed from that team in 2017 following revelations of his anti-Trump text messages. But earlier this month, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz revealed a new text message in which Stroke had vowed to stop Trump from becoming president and made clear that as many as five FBI employees exchanged politically charged messages. And the Inspector General report noted that it was specifically concerned about text messages exchanged between FBI officials uh, that potentially indicated or created the appearance that investigative decisions were impacted by bias or improper considerations. Proving that is what this is at least purported to be about. The inspector general's report uh, noted that it was specifically concerned about the text message exchanged between FBI officials Stroke and Page that potentially indicated um, that uh, they were attempting to have an impact. I don't know how any reasonable person reads the text and would suggest there was no bias. Meadows, a member of Congress, said, uh, speaking to reporters, none of my concerns about political bias have been alleviated based on what I've heard so far. Uh, Mr. Horowitz ultimately found no evidence that the anti Trump bias among the several FBI agents impacted prosecutorial decisions in the Clinton email probe. However, the only reasons they concluded there was not bias in the IG report is because there were multiple people in the decision making process, Meadows said, to suggest that Peter Stroke was not biased does not actually correspond with the decision the IG made. So, again, questions yet unresolved and the investigation and inquiry will continue. Well, I mentioned yesterday that the Trump travel ban, uh, ban rather, was um, uh, upheld by the Supreme Court by the same 5-4 ruling we've seen in several decisions uh, released this week. The uh, countries targeted in that immigration proclamation, which the Supreme Court approved, account for some 8 percent of the world's Muslims and fewer than one-tenth of the countries that make up the uh, bloc of Islamic states. Roughly 132 million Muslims live in five of the seven countries affected by the proclamation, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Syria and Yemen, along with another approximately 1.4 million Christians and other non-Muslims, according to a Pew Research Center figure in uh, for 2010. In the other uh, con- other two countries affected by the restrictions, North Korea and Venezuela, Muslims comprise less than a half of a percent of the population, about 100,000 people in total. Venezuela's restrictions uh, only apply uh, to certain categories of government officials and their relatives, so it's not a blanket over the entire country. The total uh, world Muslim population is estimated to be at 1.6 billion, according to Pew. Using the uh, conservative estimate of 1.6 billion, that means that approximately 8.2% of the world's Muslims are potentially affected by the Trump uh, proclamation uh, recently upheld by the court. Moreover, a number of individuals from those countries who fall within categories of those most likely to want to travel to the United States are eligible for exemption. So again, it's not a blanket uh, restriction. They include uh, green card holders, current visa holders, dual nationals traveling on passports of unaffected countries, diplomats, um, um, asylees, and the already admitted refugee. The proclamation also includes various 
uh, carve-outs for non-immigrant visas for some of the affected countries. The proclamation covers five Muslim-majority countries. Uh, Forty-two Muslim-majority countries are not covered, including the six countries with the biggest Muslim populations, Indonesia, Pakistan, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Egypt, and Turkey, which together account for well over half of the world's Muslims. So to say that this is a Muslim ban defies mathematics. Well, in any major piece of legislation, flaws are practically inevitable. And even careful policymaking often uh, uh, doesn't notice the errors until a new law takes effect. With this in mind, perhaps it's unsurprising that the Republicans' regressive new tax plan is riddled with dozens of mistakes. But as regular readers uh, and uh, of uh, legislation may have known, uh, noted, the details do in fact matter, and time understanding the details matters as well. While some errors are probably unavoidable, GOP lawmakers were unusually careless in throwing together their reckless tax breaks for the wealthy, effectively scribbling the legislative text on the back of envelopes filled with campaign contributions, so says Steve Bennon. Political reports this morning on a glitch that the Republicans are likely to find especially inconvenient Republicans have quietly imposed a new tax on churches, synagogues and other nonprofits, a little noticed and surprising change uh, that could cost some groups tens of thousands of dollars. Well, the recent tax code rewrite requires churches, hospitals, colleges, um, orchestras and other historically tax exempt organizations to begin paying a 21 percent tax on some types of fringe benefits they provide their employees. Now, this is according to Politico. They could force thousands of groups that have long had little contact with the IRS to suddenly begin filing returns and paying taxes for the first time. Now, this was not the intent. Politico is arguing that this is inadvertent. In this case, the fringe benefits include things like parking passes and transportation assistance. Well, many houses of worship and other nonprofit organizations aren't even aware of the change mandated by the tax law. In fact, many Republicans and those who supported it are, have not been aware, but many churches have already called for its repeal, seeing uh, it's an unnecessary financial and administrative burden. Well, how did this happen in the first place? Uh, political reports that They were mainly trimming deductions companies have long taken for entertaining clients and providing meals for employees. Republicans also wanted to treat nonprofits equally, which proved the challenge. Because those organizations don't pay income taxes, lawmakers couldn't take any fringe benefit deductions. So instead, they created a 21 percent tax on value of some nonprofit employee benefits, which means right about now, some church leaders, the ones who are aware of the change anyway, are trying to calculate the precise value of a parking space. Well, the article added that the the Treasury Department is working on regulations spelling out the details of how the tax will work. Though it's a little late for that, the new law affecting nonprofit organizations took effect in January, and groups are expected to pay the tax on a quarterly basis. In theory, this is exactly the sort of thing that lawmakers would have uh, considered during the deliberations over a tax plan before it was passed. But in this case, there were very little deliberations. A small group of congressional Republicans wrote their bill in secret, then pushed it through the legislative process without so much as a substantive hearing, which is always a bad idea, left or right. We've seen it on uh, both sides rather uh, frequently. Many of the nonprofit sectors raised questions at the time about how the law might affect houses of worship, educational organizations and others. But those questions were ignored in the name of political expediency. We'll see what happens as the wake up call has been made. And the intention of the legislation was not to tax houses of worship uh, predominantly, but may in fact result in until or unless Congress uh, amends their language or at least clarifies uh, at some future point result in 
taxes being levied. 29 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, a group of experts, in quotes, by the way, that have ranked the United States in the top 10 most dangerous countries for women, almost as bad as Nigeria. So what criterion did they use? We'll talk about that and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Sometimes I wonder what constitutes an expert when I read what some experts uh, suggest. Well, so-called experts have ranked the United States in the top 10 most dangerous countries for women, almost as bad as Nigeria, suggesting that many of the world's most grave problems have been solved. Experts in women's rights from around the world rank the United States among the 10 most dangerous countries for women. Sadly, however, issues such as, well, I won't go into detail, um, honor killings, uh, maternal mortality, and other issues. Rather, leading uh, experts, in quotes, in their fields appear to have lost any perspective categorizing the U.S. as almost as dangerous as um, Boko Haram um, militants uh, kidnapping, raping, and sexually exploiting women and girls in Nigeria. Well, the ranking was compiled by the Thompson Reuters Foundation, the philanthropic arm of Reuters, the world's largest news and information provider. Well, the foundation asked 548 women's rights experts to name the most dangerous countries from among the 193 United Nations member states in health care, access to economic resource, customary practices, sexual violence and non-sexual violence and human trafficking. The results were these. India. Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Yemen, Nigeria, and the United States. Notably missing from the Reuters list, South Sudan and Central African Republic, where the armed forces systematically rape women as a weapon of war. Uh, Mauritania, where an estimated 40% of the population is enslaved, presumably many of them women. North Korea, where tens of thousands of women are trafficked and trapped in prison camps. Iran, where women are arrested for taking off their hijabs and protesting an oppressive regime. China, where millions of baby girls are murdered under the country's one-child policy. And Myanmar, Myanmar, rather, where a genocide is happening under our watch. Well, you could go on, but somehow it's the United States where women are doomed. If living in the United States is more dangerous for women than living in a country where boys and men's bodies are used to create bonfires while women are raped and baby girls are grabbed from the legs and thrown into the fire to burn, then forgive me, we must be missing something. As far as we can tell, women in the United States face injustices but still have equality before the law. The same can't be said for these nine countries or the dozens of others that didn't make the list of most dangerous countries for women. The inclusion of the United States in this uh, group demonstrates the level of ignorance among women's experts and why so many of them shouldn't be trusted. It reflects the dangerous victimhood ideology that's pervasive among college students and shows how selfish American feminism can become. Harvey Weinstein, after all, didn't equate with Boko Haram. In explaining the decision to rank the United States as the 10th most dangerous country for women, the Thomson Reuters Foundation said the following. The United States shot up in the rankings after trying jointly to or tying joint 
uh, third with Syria when respondents were asked which was the most dangerous country for women in terms of sexual violence, including rape, harassment, coercion, and lack of access to justice in uh, rape cases. It was ranked sixth for nonviolent sexual violence. The survey was taken after the Me Too campaign against sexual harassment went viral in October last year as Hollywood movie mogul Harvey Weinstein was accused of misconduct by more than 70 women, some dating back decades. Hundreds of women have uh, since publicly accused powerful men in business, government, and environment, in entertainment, rather, of sexual misconduct, and thousands have joined the Me Too social media movement to share stories of sexual harassment and abuse. So this uh, this movement constitutes the same kind of uh, violence against women that I mentioned earlier from nations, or rather exceeds uh, the violence against women uh, that did not make the list. Specifically, experts ranked the United States the third most, third worst country for the category of sexual violence, including rape as a weapon of war, uh, domestic rape, rape by strangers, a lack of access to justice in these cases, sexual harassment and coercion in Uh, into uh, sex as a form of corruption that puts us uh, just between Syria and Congo, the latter once called the rape capital of the world. The U.S. also ranked, according to this group of experts, sixth for non-sexual violence, including conflict-related violence and forms of domestic, physical, and mental abuse that leaves us just before Saudi Arabia, where women recently gained the right to drive. Me Too was a long overdue movement. Um, The good news is that it's creating change. Men who do wrong are being held accountable and more women feel empowered to speak up. Yes, there's still a lot of work to do, but the majority of the Me Too cases don't compare to women's cries in the Middle East, nor do our injustices hold water to the inequalities of women in the developing world. We might face sexual harassment, assault, and even violence, but it's not systematically used as a weapon of war. And sure, some of us don't like like our leaders, but our government isn't gassing its own people. Speaking in relative terms, women in the United States are, well, safe. For anyone who's perplexed about the level of outrage in America today, look no further than the results of a survey. According to um, women's experts, there are 183 countries where women are better off living than in the United States. To be fair, the U.S. does allow women to be thrown out of restaurants and leaders uh, to call for their supporters to harass political opponents. But even so, women here have it, well, pretty good. So, well, so good, in fact, that our borders are overwhelmed with people dreaming of calling this place home, many of them women. To pretend that life in America is more dangerous than so many other countries is nothing short of sad, insulting, and ludicrous. Because, let's be clear, women are far better off living in the United States than they are in places like Myanmar. Women's experts, of all people, should know this unless they're making some kind of political point. Well, the president declared at one time among his many statements regarding North Korea that the threat of North Korean nuclear program has come to an end. And despite North Korea's promise to work toward complete denuclearization following the historic summit with Kim Jong-un and President Donald Trump earlier this month, New satellite imagery indicates that North Korea is making improvements to one of its nuclear science research centers at a rapid pace. Hmm, how does that square with this notion that denuclearization is ultimately the goal, albeit undefined? Well, the image is published in a report from 38 North, a website that uh, specializes in an- uh, analyzing the rogue nation, are from June the 21st and reveal construction of new buildings and the completion of a plutonium production reactor, as well as other support facilities at the Yongbyon Nuclear Research Facility. 
the center of North Korea's main research facility, according to Sky News. Modifications to the uh, reactor's secondary cooling loop, which began in March, appear ex- uh, externally complete, according to the report. A newly infilled water channel that includes a newly installed um, uh, a por- uh, probable weir uh, for controlling water flow now leads to the pump house from the uh, uh, from the river nearby. So these modifications are moving it forward in making the facility useful. The operational status of the reactor wasn't clear, uh, although the images appear to show improvements to infrastructure, the report said. The continued work at the Yongbyon facility should not be seen as having any relationship to North Korea's pledge to denuclearize, they went on to say. Well, Trump and Kim signed an agreement in Singapore on the 12th of June, stating that Pyongyang would work toward complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Now, that seems unambiguous, but we'll see. Last week, the president underscored the point of total denuclearization while noting that it has already started taking place. Well, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told CNN that there is no timeline for when North Korea will denuclearize the peninsula, but said that the United States is committed to moving forward in an expeditious move, um, uh, moment to see what can be achieved uh, when both leaders have agreed on what they intend to set out to do. Meanwhile, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and Chinese Defense Minister Wai Fenghe uh, met on Wednesday to discuss how to ensure North Korea does, in fact, abandon its nuclear program. Again, uh, it will be interesting to watch over the weeks and months to see what actually happens and whether or not words that are used by both sides uh, are meant to represent the same concepts. Uh, We learned earlier this week that they're also outlining specifically on the part of the United States um, what denuclearization would require and what the United States uh, will require of North Korea. We'll see what what to make of all of it. All right. uh, Excuse me. Coming up next, we want to let you know about the uh, effort to put the question of whether or not taxpayers in Oregon should fund abortion, how that uh, that project is going. And also the president presented the Medal of Honor to the widow of a World War II vet. We'll tell you more about that. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, it's been seven years coming. And as Jeff Jimerson pointed out in the latest Oregon Life United email, seven years, one question. Well, seven years ago, they began the quest to give Oregon voters the choice to answer this one simple question. Is it wrong to force taxpayers to fund abortions? Well, if the answer to the question is yes, we need your help. Well, time is almost up. He goes on to write that first, double check to make sure every voter in your household has signed Petition 1. Lots of people can't remember if they already signed it, but you can go to the website, OregonLifeUnited.org, and uh, you can simply find out if your name appears there. Uh, Second, commit to uh, fill a page with 10 signatures this week. And if you don't yet to have a petition, you can download a digital file from uh, the website to print from your home. And again, OregonLifeUnited.org. Third, forward uh, information to 10 people to try to get uh, this question on the ballot. My understanding is they currently have 130,000 signatures. They're going for 150. And you have until uh, June the 30th to put those in the mail. Now, if you mail it uh, after that, it's not certain that they're going to receive it in time to do the review necessary before turning in the signatures. But 130,000 signatures so far, very impressive. And again, all petitions must be returned by the 30th of June to give them an opportunity to um, 
to review and uh, eliminate any duplications or any mistakes. Seven long years of working toward the goal. Uh, so close to having enough signatures to qualify for the ballot where we can finally vote to protect thousands of women and their children from being hurt by abortion. So check that out again, the website, Oregon life United.org. Well, for Pauline Connor, yesterday was a day she wasn't sure would ever come. The widow of First Lieutenant Garland Murray Connor waged a 22 year campaign to get her distinguished service cross, uh, which he um, had earned. He was awarded uh, for his actions on January 24th, 1945 in France, updated to a Medal of Honor as his World War II battalion commander had wanted back then. Or after all these years, she says, it really is and truly is an honor. She's 89 years old, the widow, she said on Monday at the Pentagon. I had uh, really and truly given up on it. I just um, didn't think that it would ever happen, but he has a combat record that speaks for itself. I don't have to tell it. Well, President Trump awarded the nation's highest military decoration to Pauline in a White House ceremony honoring a remarkable moment of heroism from Connor's 28-month combat career, which took him to North Africa and Europe. The president said on the occasion yesterday, today we tell the story of uh, about an incredible hero. During the ceremony, he went on to say, although he died 20 years ago today, he takes his rightful place in the eternal chronicle of American valor. Today, we tell the story of this incredible man. Well, the Medal of Honor makes Connor the second most decorated soldier of World War II, according to the Army, surpassed only by legendary First Lieutenant Audie Murphy. As it turns out, the veterans upgrade needed eyewitness accounts, which were finally found by Kentucky Congressman Ed Whitfield, who sent a staff member to the National Archives where the necessary documentation was discovered. Well, his widow spoke about the uh, toll his tour of duty had taken on him, which included being wounded seven times uh, that it had on her husband, whom she married at the age of 16. You know, in World War II and Korea, they didn't recognize PTSD like they did in the Vietnam War, she said at the Pentagon. But I've always said if nobody ever had PTSD, he did. Hmm. Uh, because many of the times he would wake up in the middle of the night with nightmares. And after I would wake him up and he would uh, go outside, sit on the porch, smoke a cigarette for hours at a time. One can only imagine uh, what things he was recalling. Her husband still uh, never spoke about what happened to him overseas. Well, on January 24th, 1945, Connor's soldier, 7th Infantry, Infantry rather, 3rd Battalion, uh, were facing a counterattack from 600 German troops armed with tank destroyers. Instead of retreating, he chose to run forward into enemy fire with the telephone in order to direct uh, artillery fire in hopes of ending um, the uh, the attack. He stayed in an irrigation ditch for three hours until the battle was won as swarms of German soldiers moved toward his battalion. He'd just come back from being wounded. He wasn't even supposed to be there, said Eric Villard, a digital military historian from the Army Center of Military. But he came back to uh, his unit and ran forward and volunteered the mission and did what he did. Well, today we pay tribute, uh, the president and others said. He was indeed a giant, larger than life. He will never, ever be forgotten. Well, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican uh, Kentucky uh, of Kentucky, rather, spoke about Connor's sacrifice on the floor of the Senate on Tuesday, saying, I'm proud to congratulate Pauline and her family today, and I would like to thank her for giving our nation the opportunity to salute First Tenant Garland Merle Connor. Uh, McDonnell, uh, rather, McConnell uh, said in a statement, he embodied referring to uh, Mr. 
Connor, the highest values of our commonwealth and our nation. But this humble man never called himself a hero, so it's incumbent upon us to do just that. Connor's army record during the war included four silver stars, French valor awards, and three purple hearts. He earned the decorations in savage battles between October of 42 and March of 45 as his 3rd Infantry Division unit pushed from Morocco across Tunisia into Italy, across France, and into Germany. Of her husband, she said, uh, he was a very humble man, and I'm honored to represent him. It's um, it's not about me. It's about him, as he was my hero. He was uh, for 53 years, and he still is since he's been gone 20 years. So congratulations to the family of this remarkable warrior. Well, tomorrow on the program, we are going to talk with the editor of Romance of a Protestant Nun, One Woman's Surprising Love, uh, Surprised Rather, by Love. It was written by Pamela Reeve, a name that's probably familiar to many of you. She was a local author. She was a seminary professor. uh, And uh, she, in her latter years, uh, penned this book. She took the name of Romance of a Protestant Nun because someone referred to her in casual conversation as just that. She kind of liked the idea. And so uh, she wrote a book about her a quest to follow Christ and how she found herself surprised by love. She never married, as the title might suggest, but was a remarkable uh, uh, and uh, a remarkable intellect and uh, example to men and women all across the country. Anyway, Linda Wright was a longtime friend of Pamela Reeve, and she is the editor of Pamela Reeve's last book. Romance of a Protestant Nun, One Woman Surprised by Love. Looking forward to that conversation tomorrow. And then on Friday, assuming there's no more breaking news as there was today, I mean, it's almost overwhelming to try to put it all together. Our plan is to look at the lighter side of the news. Now, just to uh, let you know, if something, uh, if there is some breaking news, we will break into the program and certainly we'll cover that. But our plan is to uh, focus on the lighter side of the news, all things being equal on Friday. Now, I'm not really sure what that means, all things being equal. I just say it because, well, it's said. Anyway, that's uh, what we're planning on Friday. Well, Chris Williams has been engineering the program today. In fact, all week long, James Blend and his family are enjoying some time at Disneyland. And if you're a Facebook friend, you can see pictures of him and his little uh, girl and wife. They're all enjoying this week there. And he'll be back on Monday, but want to thank Chris Williams for engineering for this uh, this week. Also want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you have a great night. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.